Two men were walking to the village Emmaus. They were deep in conversation. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were unable to recognize who he was. Tell me, friends, what are you discussing? The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet. He worked miracles and spoke with such power and authority. We had our hopes up that he was the Messiah who was foretold, the one about to deliver Israel. But he's been arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. It all seems hopeless now. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. I will establish the throne of David's line forever. His house and his kingdom will endure forever before me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Open-eyed, wide-eyed, the two men recognized Jesus. He was the one who was foretold. Good morning, everyone. I, I've, I've seen that one, one other time, and it made me smile like it's making me smile now because um, the voice of Jesus is none other than Fred Sarman. And Fred, you've just been, you just got a promotion big time there, dude, so I'm very glad for you. Fred's on our tech team, and I like that he got to be the one that be voiced Jesus' words there. So welcome to First Christian Church today. To each of you who are here in the West Auditorium, to everybody in the East Auditorium, to all of those of you who are worshiping with us in line, online, pardon me, and um, to everybody in Lovington, the people of, of our congregation through gathered in a variety of different spaces, I'm very glad you're with us. My name is Wayne, and I'm going to spend some time with you today looking at Scripture. If you'll take your Bible or your smartphone and turn to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, and uh, we'll see what we can learn together from a very, very um, well-known in, in the life of churches, a well-known prophecy. To sort of get ready for that, I, I, um, I recently, probably in the last 18 months or so, came across something about ancient history, particularly medieval history, that I had never known before, and that um, we don't walk the same way the people of those days did. We have soles on our shoes that are either rubber or hard leather, and so that changes the way in which we can put weight on our heel. In the ancient days, um, if you did have shoes, they were more like just glorified leather socks. 
and you weren't, the, the shoes that you wore didn't protect you as you were walking for if there was something on the road or something to step in on the road or something to step on on the road. And um, so that they walked more with uh, their toes pointing forward, as a matter of fact. Here's what it looked like. Uh, this fellow's been practicing walking like a medieval guy. And you uh, walk with your toes in front of you, sort of like a ballerina. Um, you, 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 in other words, you get a chance to see and feel what's there before you put your full weight down. And um, it seems a little bit odd to me. Uh, this guy, he, he worked on it for six months. He walked that way every day for six months, which surely caused people to uh, wonder a little bit. Is that Because tr- I've been trying it a little bit in, in my office in anticipation of what I might look like on camera with you today. And so if we go like this, and I think it's just not right. <laughs> right? It just, just, it's not right. It just looks odd, doesn't it? But I guess if everybody walked like this, you wouldn't look so odd. They say, or this guy says, that the, his calf muscles got very, very big during this period of time of walking like this for six months. I would imagine his ego took a hit, hit though, because <laughs> big calf muscles, but a smaller ego, because you look so stupid. But there you go. <laughs> Apparently, around 1500, people began to wear more structured shoes, again, with either rubber soles eventually or hard soles. And so we stopped walking like this, we began walking more normal, what we consider normal. It, the, it, I have a question. Does it seem a little far-fetched to you? I just go... Who? This is, the, this is the subject of someone's PhD thesis, undoubtedly, and it just makes me wonder. It seems, well, I suppose, whatever. I mean, I can't be the judge of history, but it does raise a question. How did the people of the ancient world walk about? I mean, we know they didn't have access to the sort of medical foot care that we have the privilege of having. We know that the roads were dusty, and even no, Dunn Paving Company wasn't there making everything smooth. For, what was it like? How were their lives different than ours? Because certainly their world was different than ours, right? I mean, we have medicine, we have technology, we can travel very quickly. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember that there was, you know, Dick Tracy that he would talk into his watch, and that seemed so far fetched. And now I see some of you to look and say, Um, pull up Isaiah chapter 9, and you're reading it on your watch. I mean, it's just dramatic stuff. We have also changed what we wear on our feet. We have shoes that have hard rubber soles or leather on the bottom that we don't have to worry that we have to walk like we're getting ready to go dance in a ballet. So our lives are different than people of the ancient world, but maybe our lives are the same as well. I mean, did they ponder about the future like we ponder about the future? They wondered surely what life would be like for their children or their grandchildren. Generations, maybe 10, 20, a thousand times moved out. Did they hope for a better future like we do? Of course. In fact, in the days of the Bible, the Jewish people of Israel, they, like you, they were always planning for better days. And Jewish prophets would come along from time to time. They would point out that God had this intention that there would be a long-term viability and security for the nation. And that intention and that plan of God was usually include, it usually included a call to repentance on the nation, hey, return to God, and then a promised delivery of whatever mess they were in 
through um, a soon coming Messiah. And those prophecies were often and most usually set within the context of a crisis. And we're going to spend the next six weekends moving into Easter. We're going to look at some of those prophecies. And in each case, all six crises and all six prophecies point to Jesus Christ as the answer of each of those crises. This is our Lenten sermon series, a practice that we have here at First Christian Church that we say, hey, we do a lot of things throughout the year when it comes to sermons, but probably it would be a good idea to spend a little bit of time on Jesus, right? So we make certain every Lenten season, we, we at least spend six to seven weeks specifically looking at Jesus and his life. And so you could think of it this way, that our focus throughout these Lenten, series, this Lenten sermons is going to be, what's the crisis, what's the prophecy, and how is Jesus the answer to those prophecies? So we'll start today with a number of crises. We'll start, um, for example, in the 8th century before Jesus was born, 740, 740 years before Jesus was born, Israel was in trouble. A crisis was looming that eventually proved disastrous. In fact, if, I, if you can mark in your head 740 BC, and then also in your head 721, 19 years later, the prophecy we're going to read today is at 740 BC. 19 years later, 10 of the 12 tribal units, tribal families, tribal sort of states and nations within the nation disappear from the historical record. They were literally obliterated by the Assyrians. So you, so you have, if you will, 10 twelfths, five-sixths of the nation disappearing in a period of 19 years. We're going to read at 740. The Assyrians arrived at 721. And those people, generally speaking, we have a little bit of understanding that some may have ended up in Africa, but for the most part, those, that whole groups of, all, those whole groups of people disappeared, annihilated. Here's how it came about. Assyria, what we would consider modern-day northern Iraq, it was growing in military strength. And so as it is coming up, Israel's military strength and economic prowess is declining. And more importantly, the Jewish nation's allegiance to God was also in dramatic decline. There's a power vacuum that was created by this um, spiritual dearth on the part of Israel. And Assyria rose to fill that vacuum. And Isaiah comes along in 740 B.C., and um, he's one of the prophets of that day, and this is what he's saying. We're in trouble, folks. We've walked away from God's protection. We will no longer experience God's blessings because we've walked away from that, from that protection. Ruin is about to come upon us. You can see the storm clouds of war gathering in the east. War is coming, and Assyria will not be kind, and we won't, not, we won't know how to walk, toe down or heel now. We won't know how to live our daily lives. And in Isaiah chapter 8, in the last verses of that, of that chapter, he describes what it's going to be like when the Assyrians arrive. 740, he's saying this, 19 years later, this is what happened. Distressed and hungry, they will roam the land. When they are famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upward, they'll curse their king, so they'll curse the national leader, and they'll curse God. So they look up, there's nothing there. They'll look to the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They'll be thrust into utter darkness. It's a crisis that I don't know that we can fully comprehend. Impending war, the absence of God's care, 
Slavery and death are imminent. Remember, 10 of the 12 tribes are obliterated in the war. They're gone. We don't fully understand that here on the mainland of the U.S. We don't know what it's like to have somebody invade us, per se. And yet in the midst of that crisis, Isaiah says, a day is coming when all will be well again. Those walking in darkness will not be like those who are unable to walk. You know, people walking, trying to feel, feel their way with their toes. No, he said, there's a day when we will return to God and he will send a Messiah. Read with me chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. He says, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Make note of that language right there, Galilee of the nations, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Remember, where did Jesus come from? Galilee, right? Here's what will happen. Those who were walking in the land of darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation, God. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For when the, like when Midian, who is an enemy of Israel, when Midian was defeated, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. They are slaves, right? So what do slaves have to do? They have to pull the plows. They have to literally wear the yoke. You've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod, the whipping of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. There won't be war. How? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And here's some titles of who this baby, some titles of what this baby is going to be called. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. You may remember that language from Christmas each year. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness that from that time on and forever. And how is this going to occur? Well, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, we've, you're familiar with that passage of Scripture when we come to Christmas each year. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the coming of that child. Now, your Jewish friends would say, no, they're still waiting. But Christians believe that this child with the royal titles of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, we believe that that son, that child, has already come. We believe the crisis of the 8th century B.C. was solved in Israel through the coming of Jesus Christ. Yet there's another crisis that needs our attention that relates to this same passage of Scripture. I want you to move forward in time from 740 years before the time of Jesus' birth to the time of Jesus' birth, to the place where he grew up. Not where he was born, but he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in the area called Galilee. And, and so can I give you a brief description of what Galilee is like? As Michael Card, theologian and songwriter, says, Galilee, during Jesus' day, was a land of crisis. Here's why. Galilee's north of Jerusalem, and um, it was kind of the place where all the highways, the walking ways, the, the roads of the Roman Empire, all went through the area of Galilee. And so while the area was Jewish, in primary, Jew, primarily Jewish in, in population, there was a lot of influence 
from other nations and that impacted the culture. And from the perspective of Jewish, the Jewish nation, that, that influence was not always good. Matthew's gospel refers to Galilee as the Galilee of the Gentiles. Or do you remember back in verse 1 of the passage of the scripture we read, Isaiah calls it, it says that Galilee of the nations will be on. That's because all kinds of different nations were involved in coming into Galilee. But it meant that the Jewish culture there was suspect. Josephus, the, the governor of Gal- Galilee, says that, oh, there are probably about three million people who live here. And you put three million together in a place where there's outside influences coming in all the time, there were all, often revolts and struggles within the population. We have, from if you went to Sunday school, you have this rather idyllic understanding of all these little quaint little villages, you know, 2,000 years ago and everybody getting along. It was anything but that. It was crowded, frequently the center of conflict. The conflict was between the Romans and the Jews and even between the Jews themselves. And um, if you were Jewish there, or any, any person from any other nation, just not, if you weren't Roman, then you're being persecuted. And persecution always brings a conflict amongst those being persecuted about how are we going to respond to this persecution? Do we acquiesce or do we fight back? And so you've got those two extremes with everything in between. And the people of Jesus' day in Jesus' area where he grew up, they were no less conflicted. And then you've got the whole issue of the purity of the Jewish faith there. People from outside of Galilee, Jewish people looked down their noses if you came from Galilee. As a matter of fact, you see this in Scripture. In John chapter 1, there's a story of um, Nathaniel asking, is Jesus really the Messiah? And he, he, he has this question that was sort of on everybody's lips. He asks, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? Can anything good really come out of Galilee? It was, it was not the place to be at or the place to be from. And so the Jews down south, down toward Jerusalem, on the other side of Samaria, they didn't like the Galileans. The Galileans, because of all the outside influence, did all kinds of crazy, crazy things from the perspective of those in the south. Like those in the south said, we never eat meat mixed with dairy products. That was a Jewish law. But up in Galilee, they did. And if you were going to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee, you normally would go around Samaria because that's not a Jewish nation. And so the pious Jews would walk around Samaria, but Galileans would just walk back and forth to go. If they needed to go to Jerusalem, they'd just go straight through Samaria. And that was like forbidden, also forbidden. If you were from the north in Galilee and you ended up down in the south and on the Sabbath, you wanted to go to worship, they would say to you as you came in the door, you people from Galilee, we don't want you reciting any of the prayers, please. Why? Well, you've got that Galilean accent, and we just don't like that accent. It's a weird accent. As a matter of fact, you remember when Jesus was on trial? Peter was standing outside as the trial was taking place, and he's standing around a fire, and a woman says, you're from Galilee, you should know him. And how did that she know that? Because he had this weird accent compared to the people in the South. So you've got this crowded place with a mixed population, customs that are at odds with one another, uh, people who are contentious and yet look down upon. Uh, as a matter of fact, people in the south tended to be a little bit more wealthy, and so they would own land up in Galilee, and they would have tenant farmers up there. And it's just, it was a, it was a place that was very, well, you put it this way. At the time of Jesus' birth and his upbringing, all Galileans 
faced a collision course with a crisis. And that's the setting of Jesus' home. That's where he was raised, a land of crisis. And this is where the Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, this is where he, was, where he was raised. And is it any wonder then that when he gets to be an adult and he's involved in ministry, is it any wonder that the leading Jewish leaders of the day, when they're down south in Jerusalem and Jesus shows up, they say, we don't want a Messiah from Galilee. That wouldn't be good. Except back here in Isaiah chapter 9, what does it say? The land of Galilee, the, Gentile, the, the, Gal, the, the Galilee of the nations where all people gather, that's going to be lifted up. So we have this crisis seven to 800 years before Jesus was born. We have a crisis in the area of his upbringing. And I would suggest, friends, that when it comes to describing a crisis, you might also think of our present time. Here in the U.S. and in other nations in the Western world, we must admit that our sense of impending disaster is not quite like what, we just, what I've just described with 740 years before Jesus' birth or at the time of his upbringing. I mean, those were, we, don't, we, don't, we don't face that sort of imminent threat, but we are in a place of crisis. What is the crisis? Well, we can name anything, a number of things that we're dealing with. We have a global pandemic. It threatens our very lives. Regardless of your economic status, rich or poor, Regardless of your educational status, whether you've got a doctoral degree or you're illiterate, all of us are eminently at risk of death. My understanding is that within the next few days, the number of people who have died from COVID will soon pass over 2.5 million, million people around the world in just the coming days, including not just people over there, including people from our own congregation. We've lost people from our church. So it's not a crisis over there. Well, it's a crisis over there, but it's not just over there. It's a crisis here. It's a crisis of global proportions that is also visiting us in our city, in your neighborhood, in your home. In addition, here in the Western world, we face a crisis of morality and ethics. Our culture is not dealt, effectively dealt with you know, the inequalities of life and power and economy and is profoundly evident in our own nation. The most recent federal election here in the U.S. has exposed fractures within our society. We've ignored them for far too long, and we now have this disparity of voices on the right and the left on any num number of matters. It seems like the disparity is growing further and further apart as the voices become louder and louder, and I would say, friends, that is a crisis. Absolutely, it's a crisis. You and I are living in the midst of it, and we don't know how to manage it. 2021 is a setting of crisis, and we don't know if we should walk toe first, sort of thinking, okay, where's this going to go, or walk heel down. Our culture needs what the culture of eight centuries before Jesus needed. Our culture needs what the people of Jesus' day needed. Our culture needs a prince of peace. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You know, when Isaiah uses that title, particularly prince of peace, he uses a Hebrew word that you may have heard before. 
The word is prince of, and the Hebrew word is shalom. Have you ever heard that word? Prince of shalom. Um, shalom, uh, here, here's what it looks like. You, uh, it's, it's, you read from right to left, so the SH sound is the character that looks like a candelabra or some sort of unusual W. That's shalom in Hebrew. It has a lot of meanings from the Bible's perspective. Most of all, it's how you and I want to live. Shalom is how you want your friends and family, what you want them to experience. It's, it's how you'd like to move from whatever personal crisis you have to personal peace. See, this morning we've looked at the crises of seven, eight hundred years before Jesus was born, the crisis of the time of when he was alive. We've looked at the crisis within our own culture, but I'm aware of this. You and I also face crises from time to time. Oh, they may not have the epic implications for nations and large communities like the ones we've talked about already, but when those crises come to your household, they are huge, aren't they? And you cry. You cry out to God. You lay awake at night pondering, and you ponder the days, you ponder the nights, and you say, I need some peace here. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, just incredibly emotional. So I just need some peace. You also need the Prince of Peace, the giver of God, Shalom. Prince of Peace, the one who gives peace. You need that giver to give that Shalom to you. So what is Shalom? Well, it's living in a state of um, favorable circumstances, we could say. If you want to get your phone out and take a photo of that slide, that might be helpful for you in the days ahead. It's living in a state of favorable circumstances. It's living with safety, free from danger. There's no disease. It's living with a sense of wholeness and well-being, that you're satisfied and content with what you own, and that the people who are important to you are nearby. You know what shalom is? Shalom is living on a $500,000 sailboat off the coast of Fiji with all your family close by, all the bills are paid, there's perfect sailing wind every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Your knees never give way, your back never has pain, and there is never, ever, ever a need to shovel snow. <laughs> Actually, that's not shalom. Sailing in Fiji is not mentioned in the Bible. But the stuff about a sense of wholeness and satisfaction, that all is well, that there is deep peace within you, that is shalom. All of that is within Scripture. And when Isaiah says Jesus is coming, the Prince of Peace, he is the provider of that shalom. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And Isaiah uses that word specifically. Wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Shalom. Maybe you could think of it this way. There's a story in Scripture that describes a person in crisis and experiencing deep, deep personal pain. And some of the um, details may not be the same as, as what you and I have experienced, but the deep pain, we know that. So see if you could relate to this young woman's na um, story. Her name is Hannah. Hannah was in an unusual setting, what we would call unusual. Um, um, unless you belong to that TV show where they have 
a guy that's married to four or five different women. I don't know what that, whatever that show is. What's unusual for hers, from our perspective, though it was common in that culture of that day, is that Hannah was married to a man by the name of Elkanah, and he had two wives. Wife number one was Penina. Wife number two was Hannah. And uh, the struggle in the family was this, that Penina had children, but Hannah couldn't have children. Some issues of infertility were involved. And Penina used to kind of like rub it in her face. It's more than a thousand years before Jesus was born. And uh, this is what's how the story is recorded in Scripture, that Hannah's rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, in the midst of this um, struggle, one day the family goes to worship at the local synagogue. So you've got Elkanah, the father, the husband, and then you've got the two ladies and the children of Penina. And they're there. And in, a moment, in, in worship, in a moment of utter anguish, Hannah becomes so desperate in prayer that the local priest, again, Eli, he thinks that she's drunk. He's, he's mortified. How dare anyone come to worship while intoxicated? And this is how the scriptures read. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. He, he's kind of like mortified. What are you doing here in the synagogue? What are you here doing in worship? With you sh Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. You can imagine the anguish of her soul. Maybe infertility is something that you've dealt with in the past or dealing with right now. Or maybe it's some other anguish of soul that you can relate to. Maybe it's a crisis that your family is facing right now. Perhaps the stress of a difficult, if you can think of it this way, the stress of a difficult winter combined with the worries of COVID added to some stuff at work or at school. It's all mixed in with an illness in your body or in somebody in your family who's ill. And you can quickly get to a point of bitter grief and anguish, just like Hannah. It's a crisis moment. If so... Be the observer. Be the fly on the wall. Be somebody sitting in worship with Hannah as Eli chastises her and then realizes, oh, the chastisement is unwarranted. This woman is in deep anguish. Because look at what Eli says. Eli, when he realizes, he says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked for him, asked of him. That word peace, what word is it? Again, it's that shalom. Go and be well-rounded. Go and be satisfied. Go and have the needs of your life taken care of. His answer is your answer. It's found in Jesus Christ. Go in peace. Go in shalom. And I would say the same for you. Walk in peace today. And may God, through Jesus Christ, provide answers to your pain. And so... I'd like to do this. As your pastor today, I'd like to speak a word of blessing over your life today. 
whether you're here in the, in the West or in the East, maybe you're online, I'd like you to receive this word from God today. Not just from me, but from God. And so would you take a posture of reception and just hear this. That as we are here in worship, just like Hannah was, in deep anguish, midst of crisis, this is my word for you today. When you leave worship later on, go in shalom, go in peace, go with the full roundedness of God going with you. And may God grant what you have asked of him. For it says in Ephesians that Jesus is our peace. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, whether the days feel like there's muck on the road in front of you that you're worried about, or there's something there that might stub your toe, whatever it is, through the power of God Almighty, may you walk heel down, firmly planted, experiencing the leadership and guidance of God Almighty. Let's pray together. God, for my friends. Lord, we've done a lot of life together, a lot of us. And I know stories of people online, I know the stories of people in the, both auditoriums in Lovington, Lord. Places where um, life is tricky. Life's got some extra, extra challenges right now. There's challenges at work, there are challenges at school, there are challenges regarding health, and there's, ah, Lord, at times, a sense of crisis. Just as Isaiah said 2,700 years ago, that a child would be born who would bring peace, we would say, God, that that child is Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we all experience his peace today through a great work of, of heaven within our souls. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
from the source of its supply. Cause in the highlands and the heartache, you're neither more or less inclined. I would search and stop at nothing. You're just not that hard to find. Oh, I will praise you on the mountain and I will praise you in the mountains in my way You're the summit where my feet are So I will praise you in the valleys all the same No less God within the shadows No less faithful
mighty rivers flowing upwards from a deep but empty grave. I will praise you on the mountains. I will praise you in the mountains in my way. You're the summit where my feet are. So all the same no less God within the shadows no less faithful when the night leads me astray you're the heaven where my heart is in the highlands and the heartache all the same 